and welcome to Open Source Underdogs. I'm your host, Mike Schwartz, and this is episode 55 with Miguel Valdez Faura, CEO and co-founder of BonitaSoft. Not every tech company follows the same trajectory to success. Hypergrowth is great if your market supports it, but the world of infrastructure software is diverse and hypergrowth can subject your business to unreasonable risk. To me, BonitaSoft was a reminder that a CEO's responsibility can transcend shareholder value. While the primacy of shareholder value seems axiomatic in Silicon Valley, it's worthwhile for entrepreneurs to weigh that risk. Miguel and his team did just that, and their success validates the idea that business models are not a one-size-fits-all proposition. As a side note, as I was doing my research, I noticed that Miguel has interviews in Spanish, English, and French. American CEOs are lucky to speak two languages, but three, it's pretty exceptional. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the interview. This was the last of 2020. So without further ado, here we go. Miguel, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Thank you, Mike, for having me. So although this is a business podcast, you're a technical founder, and and sometimes it helps to have a high level of understanding of the market. Business process management, or BPM, it's still an important way to think about how to apply technology, but the technology landscape has changed so much since 2001, (laughs) I guess, when you started the project, and even since 2011 when you started BonitaSoft. But why is BPM still a good way for companies to think about how to build applications? (laughs) <laughs> good question. So it's because companies, it's, uh, you know, I like to say that it's all about processes. You know, uh, there are a ton of processes uh, to, that are required to run a company from uh, some that are more critical than others. But uh, so Workflow and BPM uh, Technologies has been here for a while to help companies to rethink, reinvent, and automate their processes, whatever they are critical or not. No? So I think it's, this is something... Uh, that is um, here for a while, as you mentioned, and of course, the market is evolving because also the needs of those processes are changing in organizations. So the Benita project itself started at the French National Institute for Research and Computer Science. The project was transferred to the Bull Group, and then in 2009, you started Benitasoft with Charles Soulard and Rod- Rodrigue Legal. Exactly. And so over the years, how has the community grown? Is the Bull Group still involved? And are there other important contributors in the ecosystem? So Bull Group, is, uh, which is now part of uh, Atos, Atos Origin, is involved but as a partner. So it is part of, it's one of those 100 and plus partners that we have. I'm talking about consulting and system integrators partners that helps customers worldwide with the Bonita implementations. But uh, nothing more, no? meaning that over the years, Bonitasoft has grown an international community that, that goes beyond uh, specific companies, but also uh, having uh, individuals working sometimes as freelance, others as part of the bigger companies. And I think that's one, uh, one of the main achievements. No, We have now a community of around 150,000 individuals working uh, with Bonita. Not all, not all of them, of course, are contributing. There is only a small portion that is contributing code, but there is people participating in answering questions in the forum or translating the product. So there are there is a lot of activity in the Bonita community. Eh? And it's not relied only on, on one, one company. So in an interview a few years back, you said that the no-code approach does not open the possibility for developers to write code that meets business needs. Can you expand on that? Uh, don't business people love drag-and-drop GUIs to build BPM workflows? Yeah, good one. So uh, probably I was referring that with, the, with this new trend of uh, low-code and 
and uh, this um, new kind of developers that I think some analysts were calling business developers, they at some point where we were facing with people that are not really skilled in, in development to build uh, some complex applications, no? And uh, at some point, they're going to face some limitations, no? Of course, a lot of people like to build uh, applications using a drag and drop, as, as I mentioned, or, or visual tools. But uh, when the application gets more complex or when you need to customize a little bit more the application, at some point, developers need to be part of the game as well, no? So um, I'm not saying that uh, it's not useful to have business people participating in the development projects. I'm not saying that uh, the low-code movement is not something that is real. I'm just saying that we need to find a balance between uh, things that can be done graphically and things that requires code. And it's about how those two different skill sets can collaborate, how business people or people without uh, development skills can also work uh, in the same project with developers. And probably those two uh, personas are not going to use the same tooling. So thousands of organizations use Bonita Soft. But switching to the business side a little bit, from a revenue perspective, do you see the 80-20 rule where 20% of your customers make up 80% of your revenues? And if so, what does that 20% segment look like with regard to use cases or industry verticals? In terms of um, uh, the verticals, of course, we, you know, I think it's not only something uh, particular at Bonita Soft, all the BPM vendors, you know, has a lot of uh, traction in markets at that are highly competitive. So, for example, uh, insurance, uh, banking, telecommunications, pharma, because uh, there is a lot of pressure to uh, to do better than the competition because there is a lot of process that are related about uh, how you provide better services to to your customers and how are you going to retain those uh, those customers by providing good services. So, um, those will be probably the the main four sectors in which Bonita Soft is evolving and getting customers, and it also potentially the ones in which other other vendors are also evolving. In terms of the split or the size of the of the customers that, that we have, we have decided from the very beginning to focus on medium and large organizations. So we, uh, you know, there are some BPM vendors that are focusing on uh, smaller implementations. We are really focusing on complex implementations in mid and large organizations. So um, uh, the majority of our customers, I would say like, yeah, 75% of our customers will match that criteria. And uh, the majority of the, the project implementations inside those projects are either core or critical to their business. No, We usually don't start working with a customer in a less critical uh, business process, but this part of our strategy. No? And of course, our product is, 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 uh, is better suited for those complex implementations. Kind of a basic question, but what would you say are the most important value propositions for your customers? First of all, we are, we are selling a platform, not a product. So what we want is like to bring together those two personas that I was referring in a previous question. So how business people or less skilled people in terms of technical skills and how developers can work together. So we have a platform in which we have clearly separated the visual programming capabilities versus the coding capabilities. No, So in a sense, we are taking the benefits of uh, the majority of uh, uh, things that we see in an open source project. So extensibility, open architecture, rich APIs, compatibility with other open source technologies that are things that uh, appeal to uh, developers. And at the same time, we have an integrated platform, a unified platform that is also providing visual cap- visual kind of capabilities to less technical people. And also, this clear separation in which uh, depending on the skills that you have, you can use some of the capabilities of the platform and depending on your skills, you can use some others is what I think that makes us different and people like about our, our solution. 
The Benina project is open source, and Benita Soft has a platform built around that. How exactly do you do you monetize? So we sell subscriptions. So we sell subscriptions that package additional capabilities to the open source version, and also some uh, professional services. And uh, this, those subscriptions that are minimum is an annual subscription are sold either for people that are deploying the Bonita platform on premise. Or people that are using our cloud offering, no. So, uh, but in the two situations, we are basically adding capabilities on top of the open source um, solution, like for example, monitoring capabilities, scalability, and we package that together with uh, professional support, SLAs, contractual warranties uh, as part of a subscription. No, so it's a hundred percent of our product-related revenue is a recurring revenue. Cloud hosting is really a great business model, and I, I heard you mention that you're you have a, a hosted offering. How has the hosted offering evolved over the years? And do you see that becoming sort of the most important way that you deliver the software? Or would you say self-hosted is still going to be more important from a revenue standpoint? Yeah, good question. You know, I think it's uh, in our space, the VPN space, and and particularly because of the nature of uh, the projects that we target in our customers, that as I was referring as a core or critical, we still have a lot of people using the on-premise version especially in bank and insurance, that are sectors that are still, um, you know, uh, using a lot of on-premise or they, that, that they, start, they are starting their cloud uh, movement using public clouds, but not really externalizing everything to SaaS solutions. So on-premise is still really um, a big majority, but uh, we have released our cloud service 18 months ago, and we already see a attraction. So there is, there is, a, there is a more and more customers also embracing that new offering. I would say today is more like 80, 20. We expect that it's going to change, no? So uh, it took us a while to offer the Bonita Cloud version because we didn't show a lot of uh, demand previously. We, as I mentioned, we, we start seeing some companies that are more and more interested. We really believe that uh, it's going to be maximized in the next, uh, in the next uh, uh, years. But again, uh, the on-premise is still the number one option today for our customers. So how do you prioritize your R&D effort? Because you're still contributing to the open source project, but you're also building your, your commercial like extra features. And how do you prioritize R&D? That's a tricky one, for, I think, for every open source company, no? Because you need to make also clear rules about uh, what are the, developer, the developments that are going to go open source versus the ones that are going to go commercial. And the same applies to the team. Do you have the same organization? working on the two kind of features or do you decide to have different organizations so we have evolved over the over the years but one thing ha- haven't changed is that we have defined from the very beginning clear rules about what is open source and what is not for example we didn't want our open source versions to be something that cannot be put into production because uh, that was not the essence for us that is not the essence for us of open source so uh, the open source solution at bonita soft you can develop and you can put it into production However, for example, as soon as we are talking about scaling, if you need elasticity, if you want to do clustering, those are the kind of things that, that from the very beginning has only be available in the, in the commercial version. No? So first of all, it's about defining the rules. So your development team knows what goes into one edition versus the other. And not only your development team, but also, of course, the community, the community using the, the open source version and also your customers. So it needs to be really clear. And secondly, over the years, we have evolved also in terms of how the team, the development team is a structure to be more and more focused on uh, one product, one edition. So meaning that, uh, and one team. So meaning that, uh, one set of, set of people 
or developers working in a, one part of the product that is either open source or is commercial, no? which of course is way simpler to manage from a R&D management point of view. In the cloud native world, sc- scaling is, is sort of table stakes, like Kubernetes out of the box is clustered. And at, at my company, Glue, we've decided that we're going to make scaling sort of part of the open source, um, just because it seemed like it's hard to get adoption in the cloud native world unless you support Kubernetes and Kubernetes has clustering. Do you see a similar trend in the BPM market? And um, so is, is any challenges or opportunities around, around Kubernetes and the move to cloud native? Even before Kubernetes, the move up that we saw was the adoption of Docker. So we, we saw uh, four years ago, we started to demand Docker support for, you know, as a way to use uh, to start and deploy Bonita. And so that's one of the first things that we, that we did. So to certify a Docker image for people wanted to, um, to, to start their cloud ready projects. It took, uh, depending on the geography, some, uh, some time. We, we got that traction from the US a little bit less in Europe in terms of adoption of the Docker image. Now it's a reality. More and more people are using that. And of course, those people are also asking now, okay, yeah, let's combine that with Kubernetes. No, we have decided at Bonita Soft that this is part of uh, the kind of the, the capabilities that we can provide uh, as part of our cloud edition. So uh, the elasticity capabilities that are offered to our cloud customers is based on Kubernetes. And uh, I think that the value to the customer is that we are able to manage that automatically for them. No, So this is something that we are at Bonita Soft proposing all in our, in our cloud offering. No, Of course, but if, uh, if someone wants to do it on-premise and they want to integrate the current Bonita on-premise version with uh, the Kubernetes and manage elasticity, they can do it. No, But uh, there is something that we have packaged to make it really simple for for um, for people that wants to use the cloud, the cloud service. As you know, investors are super focused on top-line growth. They want growth, growth, growth. But when there are major technology shifts, like from 2011 to today, seems like a different world. You know, it's hard enough to survive, let alone to grow 100% per year. Can you talk about some of the challenges of achieving this high level of growth and and how you, especially if you have to pivot at the same time, like you probably did over the last couple of years. Yeah, really good question. I mean, uh, you know, it looks like uh, hopefully things are changing. But when we started Bonita Soft in two thousand and nine, and especially in the in the years that follows, it looks like everyone needs to be needs to become a, a hyper growth company, no? And of course, uh, you know, everybody was trying to raise a lot of money, and, and we did it as well at Bonita Soft. And, uh, and of course, raising a lot of money means also at some point delivering. Uh, really high growth but uh things are changing and i think that that's that's okay and uh, that's possible in some situations it's something that uh, you need to also be willing to do we we went at some point growing the company that way at bonita soft especially at the beginning at some point we decided to change uh, we decided to change because we wanted to build a, a sustainable more sustainable business and of course the level of risk that you take uh, if you are always fo- uh, following the hyper growth is a big risk uh, because of course you are depending a lot of inve- on money from investors. Usually, high growth means uh, high losses, so you need to raise money. Of course, uh, missing some of your targets can put the company at risk. Uh, so we decided five years ago to change uh, and to embrace uh, what we call a sustainable growth business model, in which uh, profitability is key for us. In which we try to 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 grow as high as uh, as much as we can, if the company is profitable and in an environment in which uh, people. Are enjoying their day-to-day work. No, so we have to switch from one to the other, and I think that the, the pandemic that we are living those days is also reminding us that uh, potentially 
you know, that's also a, a model that some other companies should consider. It's very interesting that you're saying switch to high growth as long as it's profitable. But how did your investors, um, how did you manage the relationship with your investors? Were they on board with that? Or was it was there some friction around saying, we don't want to accept this high level of risk? You mean at the beginning or when we decided to change to a more sustainable growth uh, model? When you decided to change? Of course, we, we had some discussions about that. And, uh, but I think that they were, they were happy to see that, uh, you know, after seven years of existence, we wanted to start looking to profitability. <laughs> you know, at some point, I think that's, uh, that's important, important for a company. And so, uh, they were okay with that. And then, of course, uh, we, since that, we have another kind of discussion with them because we are not asking any more money. The company is profitable for the last four years. So, uh, then uh, you need to deal with other things like, okay, yeah, do you, uh, are we looking for, uh, for an exit? Are we looking to, to, uh, uh grow, uh, and uh, do some acquisitions? Do we want to continue to grow uh, the business organically? But in any case, you are not forced to raise money, which I think is good uh, for us. And in some situations, also good for investors. So as a technical founder, um, albeit one who's been on the business side for a long time, building a sales organization is really challenging. Is there anything you've learned about about building the, the sales team that you'd like to share with, with startup founders? <laughs> yes, you know, it's, it's maybe because I'm also an engineer by training, but, uh, you know, uh, we have changed, uh, of course, we did a lot of adjustments in the sales organizations over the years and we made a lot of mistakes and, uh, and we learned a couple of things and we make, of course, some, some great success. Uh, but, you know, uh, for the last four years, we are operating, uh, with a sales methodology that uh, probably you, uh, you, you know that is called customer centric selling methodology, which is really focused on, uh, on, uh, on the value that you can bring. To the customer that is more focused on uh, quant- uh, quality versus uh, quantity, in which uh, uh, you do uh, not a lot of prospection, but you are really trying from a marketing perspective to have people really interested in having a discussion with you and spending a little bit more time and trying to, to provide a, a solution that is, uh, as I mentioned, to the problem. So then you can uh, not only acquire a new customer, but also uh, make sure you can renew over the years. And uh, this is one of the big things that we did, no? And we did it by having a mix of, uh, uh, in the sales team that are uh, people that are coming from different backgrounds, including engineering. And I think uh, that's one of my first learning is that you can have people that have an engineering background that are doing exceptionally good at sales. We think we're seeing that in more and more companies, no? And second, that you need a methodology that is really focusing on providing value and delivering value to the customers. And this, methodology needs to also be shared with marketing and needs to be shared with the rest of the organization, including R&D and product teams. No? And that has been a, a big change for us. Of course, we didn't do that from one day to the other, but that moved to this new methodology, having the right mix of people and focusing more on uh, content and maturity of, uh, of our leads than on quantity and prospection has made a big difference for us. You mentioned that Atos was uh, still a partner and Perhaps there are other partners who are either bringing you business or you see as critical, but can you talk about like the role of like how, how the, the, the partner strategy has evolved over the years? Today, we have three different kind of uh, partners. So we have, uh, we were talking about Atos, so we have a category that we call consulting and system integrators partners. And as I mentioned, we, ha- I have, we have something like a uh, hundred and plus uh, of those partners. So including CGI, including Atos, including Capgemini, including Sopra. Or, and then, and then other thing in the U.S., you call it more boutique-like 
partners, so people that are more specialized in a in a one uh, uh, one particular sector. So uh, implementing projects in uh, insurance or uh, in banking, for example, in the U.S., people like Evoke, in Latin America, people like Indra. This is one category. No, those uh, kind of partners are helping us either to identify new opportunities and also to do the implementation. No, by the way, uh, 60, 62 percent of our new business is influenced by those uh, consulting partners. Second category will be the technology partners. So if this is no surprise here. So uh, this is uh, about integration of our product with other products in in um, in similar markets. So for example, we have those kind of partnerships with uh, UiPath in the RPA space. We have this kind of partnership with uh, DocuSign. So basically that means a bidirectional integration between the two products and a joint go-to-market in which we think that the two products combined can bring more value to the customer. No, And the third type of uh, partners that we have are OEM partners. So it's people that um, or companies that are embedding our technology and reselling as part of their product. And uh, so to, to name to name one that is uh, the more the more representative, we Talent is doing that. Talent, that, that integration leader is uh, embedding Bonita in one of their offerings. No, so those are the three kind of uh, partners. And of course, this thing has been evolved and has been uh, over the years. So we started with uh, putting a lot of effort on consulting and system integrators partners. And then we start to focus in a second step on more the technology side of the story. No, you mentioned OEM partnership, which is interesting for open source because I would think that companies who want to OEM could use the open source and become part of the ecosystem. What is the driver for a company to OEM an open source product? <laughs> Good question. I think it's the, the nature of the technology that you are embedding. No, if you are embedding just a Log4G for do logging, that was the, at least the library that was using when it was a, a developer 15 years ago, or Hibernate uh, for persistence. Potentially, it's not the same than uh, than embedding BPM engine or or a workflow engine. No, so uh, if you are embedding a solution that is more like a project or a platform and is uh, some way critical to uh, to the other solution that is embedding it, potentially you are going to look for not only can I do it from a license perspective, but also what happens if something uh, crashes or there is a bug? So potentially you are going to contact the other company to do a partnership. So that's that's what's happening a lot in our uh, ecosystem. No, embedding a, a BPM engine or embedding uh, the whole platform yeah, or embedding a, a workflow solution is something that potentially you're going to use for mission critical things. So if that is the case, even if the license allows you to do it, potentially you are going to also look for some help from from the, from the from the company that is building that, no, and of course, then it could be also a, an issue with the license, no. You have to, you know that some of the licenses, for example, the GPL license, are not allowed to to uh, to embed directly without uh, having an OEM agreement in place or changing the license, no. So it could be either a license issue or it could be a you need uh, some help in some if something goes wrong. I normally don't ask about license because I've actually been thinking about doing a whole other podcast or maybe in a, a season or something just on licensing because it's a complex topic. Yeah. And of course, Bonita Project has been around for a long time, but is it GPL license? Can you just talk for a second about the about the open source license that you're using and maybe why? We use uh, the open source project is, is really under the GPL license and it's more a historical reason. So this is how we started you know, the, the, the project, you know, at that time, uh, it was the time in which, uh, uh, my sequel was, uh, Chibos, those kind of projects were appearing. It was the time of, uh, 
enterprise middleware. So we, we kept that license because that was also all the discussions around open core business model. And we didn't change uh, since. Uh, but for example, we are now also launching new, uh, new uh, products in which uh, we are also moving to, to some other license like uh, Apache or MIT. No? But yeah, we, we kept uh, for the Bonita, the Bonita project, the GPL license, because this is the one that, we, that everything started. It sounds like the less permissive license actually has benefited you. I think there's sort of a knee-jerk reaction or a policy among entrepreneurs these days to use permissive license like MIT or Apache, but it sounds like GPL actually helps you in this case. Yeah, it, it, it can help. For example, we're talking about the OEM. It can help in the OEM space. Some of the people are going to see uh, that there are some restrictions. And then, of course, there is the, this debate about, okay, but uh, if, uh, if I'm embedding a GPL library, you know, it's going to be uh, something that they call contaminating my project. But usually when you have that issue, it's because the product that you are building is usually something that you wanna you don't want to follow the, the open source movement. And uh, so you want to commercialize something just by leveraging uh, other people's work uh, in open source. So yeah, that's, as you mentioned, it's, a, it's, it's always a complex discussion. But, uh, but yeah, I think there are some benefits about using GPL. There are potentially some drawbacks depending on uh, what you want to build with, uh, with that license. Yeah, I think it depends. So there is no magical rule for what is the best license to use in your next project. So there's a lot going on today. We have the pandemic, move to cloud native, changes in paradigms like continuous delivery. What do you think are the keys to growth in the next few years? <laughs> I think nobody knows. <laughs> That's, uh, you know, I think we need to be humble, especially with everything and uh, all those things that are going, going on those days. But, uh, you know, I will be back to my, what I was talking about, the sustainable growth. Huh? I think that uh, more than ever, you know, being in a, in a business, running a business in which uh, you know that you are profitable, that you are, of course, trying to maximize and you are ambitious, maximize, try to maximize the growth as soon as you are. If you are, if you are still profitable, having a, a strong customer base that you know that is uh, renewing year after year is what makes a big difference, especially when, the, when, when there are some situations that the ones that we are facing, no? Because, of course, uh, if you don't have that and, uh, and for, some, for some reason you, you stop signing new customers or, or you're not signing the new customers at the pace that you were signing before, if you have a strong customer base, you're going to suffer more than others, no? So I will be back to, to that concept of sustainable, sustainable growth because I think it's what makes a, or makes a company less risky and more sustainable in the long run. You know, startups are a roller coaster. I, I personally don't recommend starting a company, especially a tech company, to anyone who asks me. <laughs> but for those people crazy enough to dive into entrepreneurship, do you have any advice um, for, for new entrepreneurs who are launching a business around open source product? I will have one uh, which sounds like uh, obvious, but I think it's, uh, it's good that, uh, you know, uh, that remember that uh, from time to time, which is like, of course, there are no two companies that are alike. So the same apply to founders. So uh, don't pretend to be some, somebody else. Of course, listen and learn from others and to your ecosystem, but be yourself. And, uh, and, uh, and if you create a company, as you mentioned, if you are crazy enough to, <laughs> to, uh, to create the company, try to be surrounded by people that share the culture that you have in mind, the strategy that you have in mind. Don't pretend to, 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 to be a CEO that you are not. And that's go back at not all the companies needs to be the same, not all the companies to be unicorn, not all the companies needs to follow the same business model, but uh, you need to be really comfortable about the choices that you make. Uh, otherwise, it's going to even it's going to be even harder than uh, you know the simple journey. 
So in 55 podcasts, I always ask that question at the end. No one's actually given that answer yet, but I have to say I, I agree with that 100%. So thank you for being the 55th guest and um, best of luck this year. And thank you so much for being on the podcast, Miguel. Thank you very much, Mike, for inviting me. It was a real pleasure. Special thanks to the BonitaSoft team for helping us to schedule the interview. Editing by Inez Satenji, transcription by Marina Anchakovic, cool graphics from Kamal Bhattacharji, music from Broke for Free, Chris Abriski, and Lee Rosevier. This is the last episode of 2020. Next year, I'll keep going, although probably at a somewhat slower rate. If you have any ideas for the direction the podcast should go in 2021, I'd love to hear your feedback. You can contact me on the website, opensourceunderdogs.com. Happy holidays, founders. Hang in there and keep an eye out for new season four episodes after the new year.